Hello, everyone. My name is Seth Hahn. Please stand with me for the reading of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may change certain persons, not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Seth. Appreciate that. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see you. Good to be with you. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it is my privilege and honor to be able to open up the Word of God with you and for you today. So if you're not there already, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Well, if you've been around Disciples Church for any length of time, one of the things that you'll know is that our bread and butter um, approach to uh, teaching is that we want to work our way chronologically and expositionally Uh, through books of the Bible. So our tendency is to go from New Testament to Old Testament and back, and also to move around genres. And the reason that we do that uh, is because we want to make sure that ultimately it is the Bible that is the only rule of our faith and practice. That we're not just preaching about what we want to talk about and saying the things that we want to say. We want the Word of God to be our standard, to be our guide, to force us to address things that may be uncomfortable to us or may be difficult for us to understand. We want to allow the gospel to to penetrate those areas of our heart that may have gone untouched by the gospel simply because of the cultural stew in which we live. There's so much of our thinking, there's so much of our attitude that is formed by the world in which we live, and we're formed, we are discipled every day in the ways of the world, even in ways that we wouldn't have expected. And so as we come to the book of 1 Timothy, it's of particular interest for us as a church because it it really is an exposition on the character of the church. It's an explanation of what it is to be the church of the roles and responsibilities of belonging to the church. And this book is part of what's known as the pastoral epistles. Those are the books of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. It's a series of letters that are written from the Apostle Paul to these really assistant pastors, these men that he had trained up in ministry. They had likely come to faith through ultimately the ministry of Paul and and in the case of Timothy in particular through the ministry of his family. We've seen the gospel work, work its way into the hearts of these men and now they find themselves at a crossroads in their lives, stepping into ministry for the first time without the example and without the management of the Apostle Paul. 
And if you can imagine trying to step into the shoes of the greatest missionary that the world has ever seen, you can imagine that that would be a pretty intimidating thing to step into. And so Paul writes these letters with the intent of training and bringing up Timothy and Titus in what it is to be a pastor of a local church. And Paul lays out his own purpose statement for us in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, where he says this, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, if I'm unable to get back to the church anytime soon, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. But the church stands as a bulwark for the declaration of truth and grace, that it is given an eternal task, a task of eternal importance, a task that is so vital that Jesus Christ himself comes and gives himself for the church to enable them to do the task that he's given them. And his love and affection for the church runs so deep that the church itself is called the bride of Christ. There's a majesty and a wonder in the everyday and the ordinary of being part of the local church. So Paul lays out in this text what the church is to do when we gather, how we're to approach and interact with one another, what are the responsibilities that are incumbent upon the membership of a local church. He lays out later in the book what it means to be an elder or a deacon, what the qualifications are that are to be met, the expectations that are placed on those roles, what they're to care about, and so forth. And he also expresses warnings throughout the pastoral epistles about those who would seek to promote false doctrine within the church. And our text this morning actually starts there. It starts on kind of this uncomfortable note, at least in a human sense it might be uncomfortable for us. It starts with this idea that there is doctrine that is beginning to work its way into the church that ought to be a concern for believers. And so unlike his usual usual salutation at the beginning of his letters, Paul does does not wrap poetic about the wonder and the glory of God the way that he does in the book of Ephesians, he introduces himself, he introduces his role, and then he dives into the meat of what it is that he's going to talk about. Namely, that only when we understand faithful doctrine that is properly understood and expressed in a series of biblical truths can we properly function as the local church. And so with all of that, let's look first, if we could, at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul, in this opening salutation, lays out his God-given credentials. He's laying out the responsibility that God himself had given him as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that's actually the term that he uses to define himself. He was an apostle for a variety of reasons. One, God had explicitly charged him with carrying the message of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. He was given a particular authority in a particular period of time to be one who was, who was really paving the way for what the church was to be under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and under the ordination of Christ himself. And he was also considered an apostle because he was in the rare position of having actually seen the risen Christ Jesus on the road to Damascus. 
Now, you can read about that story at length in Acts chapter 9, but what you find there is that God took this man named Saul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, born into a high family, well-educated, who'd lived his life to the best of his ability under perfect obedience to the law, at least to the best that he was able to understand it. He was so passionate about his Judaism that he became a persecutor of the one true Christian church. He was so jealous in his love for God that he became a hater of Jesus Christ. And yet in this particular text, he understands and in fact lays out for us that Jesus Christ is God, is Savior. That as Andy started with talking about this morning, the understanding of the Trinity, this mysterious concept of the three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons and yet one God. An amazing and mysterious idea that's difficult for us to understand, but Paul expounds it here. And in doing so, he gives us an insight into his own faith and understanding. Here was this man who was such a zealot for his faith that he became a persecutor of the church. He was actually on his way to murder and imprison men and women who were believers in Jesus Christ. And as he's on this road to Damascus, miraculously, Jesus Christ appears to him calls him, saves him, and appoints him as a minister to the gospel. It's an incredible, incredible story. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, Paul finds himself in the position of having been struck blind with with this vision of seeing Christ physically in in the flesh, actually getting a picture of Jesus Christ. He's now blind in this moment. He's converted, but what are the next steps? Well, God appears to a man named Ananias, a Christian minister in the region, and here's what God says to this man. The Lord said to him, go to Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, don't miss what happened there. When the Holy Spirit of God does the work of taking a murderous man and applying to him the blood of Jesus Christ, there are no bounds to what God can do with him. God took a persecutor and made him a pastor. He took a murderer and made him a missionary. The greatest evangelist the world has ever seen began prior to his conversion murdering and imprisoning Christians. And I want you to notice the heart of Ananias as he approaches Paul for the very first time. Paul has an encounter with another Christian who he's not actively trying to kill. And in this moment, listen to the words of Ananias in verse 17 of Acts 9. So Ananias departed and entered the house where Paul was, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. When Saul received God's forgiveness, he instantaneously moved from being a murderer and a persecutor and a butcher of Christians to becoming a brother. A radical transformation in his life and certainly a radical expression of grace and mercy from this Christian brother Ananias and referring to him not as Saul, the one who breathed murderous threats against the Christian 
Not as Saul, the one who held the coats, as the first deacon of the church, Stephen, was martyred, stoned to death, but he calls him brother. And I make a big deal out of this story to begin with to say the following. For those of you who know Jesus Christ, but whose consciences are weighed down with guilt over decisions and failures that you regret, understand that your sinful past and your struggling present do not limit your future usefulness to God. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, he can take even the most troubled history in our lives, even the history that we have a difficulty forgetting, and he can turn it towards a glorious future. We sang this morning at length about the idea that God is a redeeming God. And if you noticed the words that we sang throughout the songs this morning, in particular, we sang this line, I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will, and if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. That whole song could be sung by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9, understanding for the very first time the grace of God that he was personally experiencing, and God can do all of that because he's in the business of redemption. He's in the business of taking slaves and making them sons and daughters. And so Saul changes his name to Paul. He begins to preach the gospel and to plant churches. And notice that Paul also says that he is an apostle by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now again, there's the Trinity at work. Ordinarily in the New Testament, when you see that word Savior, it is directly attached to Jesus Christ. But it should be of no surprise to us that as Paul is writing these words, he actually says it was by the command of God our Savior. And Paul's going to talk about that at length in Ephesians chapter 1 and in Romans chapter 8, that before time began, God had set his own love and affection on Paul's life, that he had pursued one who was hell-bound, running the opposite direction, a rebel to God, actively trying to hurt the church and kill the church and destroy the church. And yet, that loving father pursues Paul and appoints him as an apostle, a messenger, one who is sent. And finally, Paul ends by saying, and of Jesus Christ, our hope. And understand what Paul is saying there. He doesn't mean hope in the context that we use it, like, I hope things work out well. I hope the weather is nice this week. I hope to get the job promotion. He's saying we have an absolutely certain, positive promise of the deliverance that only Jesus Christ can deliver. That Jesus Christ is, in fact, our exclusive hope and the exclusive hope of the entire world, that Jesus is the only means of our salvation, that there is no other name in heaven given among men whereby we may be saved. And that message, understand this, is as unpopular right now as it was in the time of this writing. Several years ago, my brothers and I had the opportunity to tour one of the largest Hindu temples in the United States. It sits just outside of Houston. It's a gorgeous I mean, from a human perspective, it's a beautiful 
beautiful place, stunning architecture, the the craftsmanship of everything that goes into that temple is amazing. And so we're on this tour and the tour guide is telling us that that they had um, marble shipped over to India where different Hindu artisans began to carve into uh, into these slabs of marble to make beautiful pillars and all of these accentuated decorations that these artisans spent years of their life, sun up to sundown every single day, carving this beautiful marble in order that it may be used in this Hindu temple. I mean, just a stunning, stunning place. And as we're walking through and having a conversation with this particular, uh, this particular priest who is there, uh, my brother asked him what he thought about Christians. And his answer was absolutely fascinating because it wasn't maybe the answer that you would have expected. He had nothing but positive things to say about Christians. And as the conversation continued and and they began to have conversations about, well, what does the afterlife look like? And and the priest began to tell us about reincarnation and the hope that that the Hindu people have in, in having another life after this one that is perhaps better than the one that they're currently experiencing. He said this, he said, listen, understand that there are all kinds of different gods. He said, Krishna is a God, and Shiva is a God, and Ganesh is a God, and Jesus is a God, and Allah is a God. And his answer, rather than turning his nose up at the fact that we were Christians, is to say this, to the way to continue upward on the reincarnation scale is not just through Hinduism. He said, the answer for you is to be a good follower of your faith. So he says to the Christians, for you to experience reincarnation, be a good Christian. And to the Muslim, be a good Muslim. And right there, we have a problem. Because what does it mean to be a good Christian? What does it mean, for that matter, to be a good Muslim? I mean, Christianity states unequivocally that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, that no, no one comes to the Father but by him. And Islam, for its behalf, says there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. And there is strict and violent recourse for those who do not follow that teaching within Islamic cultures. So to be a good Christian or to be a good Muslim requires adherence to teaching that directly violates the tenets of Hinduism. And here's the reason that I say all of that. I understand that there is likely no Hindus in this room And that Hinduism, by and large, is not well represented in our state. But understand this, that mentality and that attitude that there are multiple ways to access God and multiple ways to receive salvation and multiple paths to experience enlightenment and and salvation and forgiveness and fulfillment, that attitude pervades our culture as godless as it may be. That through whatever particular means it is, people begin to pursue that hope there is an expectation that they will receive some sort of assurance, some sort of forgiveness, some sort of delight, some sort of satisfaction. And that demonstrates the problem with pluralistic, inclusivist, with a pluralistic, inclusivist perspective of religion. Because I would argue that it's actually the most arrogant position of all positions that one could take. Because when you declare on your own that there are multiple paths to God and that all roads lead to God, what you have just done is you have made yourself the arbiter of finding God. You have declared that you, not God himself, are the one who has a special revelation. You are claiming to know what all of these religions fail to know. 
you're claiming you have the way. You're claiming that you have a picture that no one else has. But understand this, brothers and sisters, in Paul's opening salutation, there's a declaration about who Jesus Christ is. And follow this, Jesus either is who he says he is or he is not. But either way, he requires a response. You cannot take part of Jesus and you cannot take Jesus plus something else because as soon as you try to supplement the gospel with anything, you have lost the gospel. And that's exactly what we see happening in Ephesus. Look at verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So follow what's happening here. Paul had planted this church in Ephesus. He had pastored it for three years. And upon leaving, he writes to his former assistant, Timothy, who is now leading this fledgling church in order to instruct him on how to shepherd the people of God in that place. Timothy, for his part, had wanted to go to Macedonia with Paul. He didn't want to leave his mentor. He didn't want to leave the man who was his father in the faith. He wanted to stay with him and minister with him and travel with him. But Paul says to Timothy, no, I want you to stay in Ephesus and pastor the church in that place. And Timothy, by all accounts that we can glean from this book, is a godly man, but one who struggles to be bold in his leadership. You get a sense of deference from Timothy in this book, that he has some sort of nervousness, some sort of hesitation, perhaps because he's young and he's intimidated by the older saints that are around him. Perhaps just because he's not a confrontational person by nature and maybe he's a little bit more demure than Paul would have been. But either way, Paul is writing in this text to encourage him to be bold for the cause of truth. And specifically, Timothy here is charged with the responsibility of maintaining the right doctrine of the church and correcting those who would try to swerve from what was most important. And notice that just immediately after Paul leaving this church, that drift was already beginning to occur. I mean, this letter is written shortly after his departure, and already in the young life of this church, there were those who were embracing, in the words of Paul, myths and endless genealogies. Now, what's happening here? What was happening is that all of these scholarly people, all of these self-proclaimed theologians, all of these people who viewed themselves to be enlightened and informed were looking at the text of Scripture, particularly the law, and they were trying to pull massive central doctrine from pieces of the Bible that were not intended to, to inform doctrine. They were looking at genealogies and they were saying there's got to be some sort of a code, some sort of a mystery, something to be gleaned from these actual words, and I think I've actually found something else that's going to be central to our Christian faith. They'd begun putting all their efforts into making of these obscure secondary issues of the law central to their doctrine of Christianity. They were trying to find something new, something profound, something different. And in doing so, they were missing the point of Scripture altogether. See, the truth is that there are all sorts of people who are drawn into that same trap. People who have incredibly strong opinions about secondary issues and they want to spend all of their time debating and promoting their pet positions, arguing about methodologies and programs and perspectives rather than focusing on what the Bible declares 
about Christ. And understand what he's saying here. He's not, he's not saying that everything people are promoting are inherently untrue, but he's saying they might be taking an idea that is secondary or even tertiary and beginning to try to make it primary. And Paul says when they do that, they promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. See, Paul here actually gives us a standard for biblical doctrine. It's at least one perspective on how to view it. And what he's saying is this, is what you're teaching and promoting and discussing explicitly making much of Jesus Is it lifting up the Bible as the only rule of faith and practice for the believer? Is it glorifying God and encouraging the people? Is it born of love and a desire to see people grow in their knowledge and understanding and relationship with Jesus Christ? Or rather, are they just trying to be right about an argument? See, every week, all around the country, there are pastors who get up behind pulpits and say all sorts of things, many of which may even be good or true and may even be helpful, but ultimately are devoid of the gospel. And here's what I mean. Pastors get up and they start talking about the fact that, well, we're going to do a series on marriage because we want to help couples understand how they can learn to communicate. And, and we want men to understand that they need to continue to date their wives even after they're married. Uh, we, want to, we want to teach them the importance of spontaneity in order to keep the spark alive in their marriage and to keep the romance at the forefront. Now, understand this. All of those things are, are fine, right? All of those things are, are good things. But do you know what gets missed when that's the point of the conversation? Jesus. So we see a Christian subculture begin to develop that at best, at best, promotes the fruit of a strong Christ-centered marriage, but is stripped from people the power of the gospel to actually achieve it. But imagine instead the hope and the power and the confidence that you offer a struggling marriage when you get up and say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or blemish. And in the same way also, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Do you see the difference? The power inherently that comes with the gospel message of Jesus Christ's sacrifice and the way that it informs every element of our lives, the way that every facet is touched and changed and turned and transformed when it's put under the power of the gospel. And when we begin to lift up things that are secondary or tertiary, even if they are inherently good things, when we begin to elevate them over the gospel itself, we have engaged in the same thing as the Ephesian church. We have begun to promote myths and endless genealogies. So look how Paul addresses the problem in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. And what kind of love? 
love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So here's what he's saying to you as a diagnostic. What is it that actually drives your conversations and your opinions? When you get into arguments or debates with other Christians and you kind of get into the thick of it and you're going back and forth, what is motivating your attitude in that particular moment? Is it a love that is born out of a sincere faith and a good conscience and a pure heart? Or is it the desire to be right in a conversation? Is it to prove yourself to be wiser than you perhaps are? But notice how he continues. Verse 6, this is enlightening language. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, worthless, empty, vapid arguments, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. That's a very gentle way of Paul calling these people know-it-alls. People are always attracted to the new and the seemingly profound, and so teachers and philosophers and communicators who can write pithy statements and can communicate well and, and share memorable lines always will be able to gain an audience. Those who have a charming presence and a winning smile can attract followers and devotees, and the only way to protect against that within the context of the church is to have the truth constantly and consistently communicated. It's to have an unchanging authority to which the teacher himself is accountable. And that is the beauty of the complete and living Word of God, which has been the anchor of our faith for 2,000 years. We have a North Star. We have a standard by which the truth is known. And when we get caught up in silly secondary issues that are not motivated by love, it creates division and destroys the church's ability to effectively communicate the blessings and power of the gospel. Now, I want you to notice the twofold nature of Paul's instruction here because it's a brilliant comparison. He says this, be confident in declaring right doctrine about the things that are central to our faith, verse 3, and Don't be the person who feels the need to make confident assertions about what you don't understand. Don't be a know-it-all. And that's good in vice in general, but it's vital in the church because, see, Christian maturity is not just demonstrated in knowing what you're willing to die for. It is also demonstrated in knowing what you wouldn't be willing to suffer a paper cut for. And when we have an inability to distinguish between what is vital and what is vapid, we find ourselves on dangerous ground. We want to be dogmatic where the Bible is dogmatic, and we want to extend grace where the Bible leaves room for disagreement. And so when those moments of disagreement arise where you begin to feel agitated or upset, be willing to stop and ask the question, why? to the extent that I'm angry or frustrated or agitated or nervous, what in me is creating that discontent? Is there something right about that where true, right doctrine is actually being attacked? Am I concerned because an important doctrine is at stake or because my pet opinion is being challenged? 
Am I extending love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, or am I more concerned about just being right? Now, notice how Paul closes this section. He says, don't use the law as a means to justify yourself or validate your own pet arguments, but rather use it for its intended purpose. And he's going to tell us what the purpose of the law is in the remaining verses. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and their mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and slavers, liars, uh, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. See, Paul is saying that these people were so convinced of their own understanding of the law and their own creative application of the law that they missed entirely the point of the law. They were so busy trying to twist the law to boost their own standing and consolidate their influence that they missed its value altogether. And in this one giant sentence, and that's what it is, Paul says the law was given to reveal our sin. It was given to show us how our sin had separated us from a holy and righteous God. It was given to point us to a need for a Savior. And so Paul goes through a junk drawer of sins, from disobedience to violence to profanity, which is the idea of treating sacred things as if they're common. He addresses sexual promiscuity. The actual phrase that he uses there is the same root word where we get our word fornication. It's all kinds of sexual sin. And then he singles out in particular men who practice homosexuality, which was probably a particular reference to sin that was either being permitted or was directly happening in the culture of Ephesus. Depending on your translation of the Bible, it may say kidnappers or enslavers or man-stealers. He's talking about those who would go into a country and abduct people in order to sell sell them in a slave market. And then, as if to put a neat little cap on it, he says, deceit, which we're all guilty of, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, this is Paul saying, if I didn't mention your pet sin, just understand that it's still referenced in here. You still have an issue with the law. If there is any part of your life that demonstrates a lack of understanding about God's perfect demand for holiness in your life, And to the extent that you fall short, no matter how little you fall short, the wrath of God is still on you, and you are still deserving of an eternal hell. Why? Because in the the committance of that sin, you have declared that you, in fact, are the God of your life, that you know better than Him how you ought to live, as we talked about at length over the last couple of weeks. And in mentioning these things, Paul is declaring the law was not given to you so that you could try to save yourself or demonstrate your intelligence. The law is intended to show you just how broken you really are. The law is given to us like a mirror 
and held up to our person, it shows every blemish and every defect. It shows every mark of dirt and every stain. The law is intended to do that, and it does so in an amazingly effective way. And in hearing the description of the unregenerate life in this text, lies and deceit and violence and arrogance and mistreatment and sexual sins, we are able to see ourselves honestly for the first time. Paul is saying, you are not basically good. Your natural disposition is not towards righteousness. There is no spark of divine goodness dwelling within you, untapped potential that if you could just harness it, could change the world for the better. No, left to your own devices, this is who you are. And the irony of this text is that there is nothing that demonstrates the brokenness of the human condition more than trying to use the law as the means to puff yourself up when its actual purpose is to break you down. It'd be like trying to use a jackhammer to lay cement. That is exactly the wrong tool for the job. And in the very same way, when we look at the mirror of the law, understand that the law inherently has no power to cleanse you of the sin. That's not its purpose. That's not what it's there for. And that's exactly where these Ephesian Christians began to drift. They're going, we're going to find our purpose in the law, and we're going to interpret the law in new ways, and we're going to try to find meaning in the law. And by doing so, we're going to know God better and deeper than the means that God himself used to communicate his love and his passion for us, which is Jesus Christ. They tried to add to Jesus, and in doing so, they lost Jesus, which is always what happens. See, the point of the law is not not to say, do your best. The point of the law is to say, your best is not enough. Paul here is saying the law is tremendously valuable. Without it, I wouldn't even know that I was a sinner but the law was completely impotent to effect change. So then what is the proper use of the law? We find it in verse 11. We'll address it at length in the coming weeks, but here's what he says. But the law is good when it's used in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The law was intended to show you your sin, to break you down from your own self-righteousness. But God does not leave us there. The glory of the gospel of grace is that it comes in in that moment where we are most understanding of the true brokenness that represents us. And in the moment where we are feeling at our lowest, God says, but I didn't leave you there. Paul writes about this idea in a very similar way. It's eerily similar to this text. When he writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Now notice, notice the language and how consistent it is with what we just read. He said, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, 
nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now there's the law. That's the standard. If you're guilty in any way of any of these things, you do not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what you deserve. The penalty of the decision that you have made is that you inherit hell. But then notice what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, past tense, in Christ. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's grace. Something that God does in you on His own. Something that you couldn't muster and you couldn't create and you couldn't manipulate and you couldn't manufacture. Something that you couldn't muster up within yourself. But God finds you in that state where you are deserving hell, having a life marked by being one who rejects God and in that moment extends His grace. See, this is what sets Christianity apart. It's not that we're great people. It's that we understand how sinful we actually are. And in that understanding that we come to God empty-handed and that God comes with overwhelming love and forgiveness. That we recognize that we needed a stand-in, a representative, a sacrifice, a lamb to do for us what we couldn't do. And that God himself condescended in Jesus Christ. That he gave up the glories of heaven and he gave up the power that belonged to him and he he gave up everything that he deserved to come and live a perfect life that we could never live. That he died the death that we deserved. And that he rose from the dead to give you his life. as you've heard, heard us reference several times throughout the past several weeks, that the only one who could live the Christ life is Christ. And that he did it for you and he does it in you. And only when we see our lives through the lens of God's law do we realize that we're true sinners. Until you realize that you're in the category of sinner, you are unable to receive the glorious promise of his grace. See, the law of God works to reveal our sin. It shows us God's holiness and the way in which we fall short of God's standard, but the law never draws you back to God. It can't. Because the law separated from grace has no power to do that in your life. But in the words of one pastor, a man named Steve Brown, he said it this way, children children will run from law and they'll run from grace. The ones who run from law never come back. But the ones who run from grace always come back. Grace draws its own back home. That is the promise of what God our Savior did through Jesus Christ, our hope. That even as we wander and even as we doubt and even as we sit with the weight of the guilt 
of sin and past decisions and current struggles, God is still saying to you, welcome home. This is your family. You are loved, you are accepted, you are forgiven, you are righteous in my sight. See, the soul of the gospel is the radical grace of God. And yet we fight to wrap ourselves up in the bondage of the law. Would today be the day that we understand, brothers and sisters, the hope that we have in Christ to let go of those chains? If you're in Christ, do you understand that the chains have already been loosed, they've already been broken? So don't go back to them. And instead, run to the grace of God. It is our hope and our confidence for our lives. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we understand as we come to a text like this that we carry into it all of our own presumptions and all of our own baggage. God, that if it was as easy as just making a decision to not return to the law, we'd be all set. But God, we know, as Paul reminds us in this text, that part of what it is to be the church is to be constantly reminded of your grace. That we're not looking for something brand new and we're not looking for something profound. But the job of the preacher and the job of the word and the job of brothers and sisters loving each other is to remind one another of the things that we so easily forget. So God, remind us Would your spirit work in our hearts to draw our attention and our affection and our love toward you to realize that we are not standing outside of the house of your grace looking in and hoping to be permitted. But rather, you have already opened the door and invited us in. You've adopted us into the family. You've called us sons and daughters so that we can call each other brothers and sisters. So God, we thank you for the promise of this text. And we pray, God, that we would cling to it in moment of doubt and trial. And it's in the name of our beautiful Savior that we pray. Amen.